Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. The news broke last November, and you'd kind of think that it would have been a bigger deal. Foreign entities acting covertly to influence and subvert Canadian democracy. Global News has learned that those very things have already been happening here, with sources telling us that Beijing is pulling the strings. Sources tell Global News that in January of 2022, Canadian intelligence delivered a series of sensitive briefings to warn the Prime Minister and select members of his cabinet that the spy agency had evidence China was running sophisticated operations, including allegations of placing Chinese agents into the offices of sitting members of parliament and funding a secret network of candidates who ran in the 2019 general election. At least 11 candidates in total. Global News sources said the network includes members of both the Liberal and Conservative parties, some with witting ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Eleven candidates in our federal election secretly funded by the Chinese government? Politicians in both of our biggest parties? All right, well, who are they? Did any of them win? 
Did they know that they had been infiltrated? And what did the prime minister do when he was briefed about it? Yeah, you would think that this would have been a bit of a bigger deal. And you'd think that maybe this story would have legs, follow-up stories, demands for answers to those questions. Well, it's been almost three months since that news broke. And the story has kind of died because Justin Trudeau kind of killed it. I have asked my officials to examine these media reports, but let me be clear. I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed, on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. And that was that. Either Trudeau was lying, or the global news reporter who broke that story, Sam Cooper, had it all wrong. Well, Sam Cooper joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Denise Bouchard-Wood, Jeff Burling, Cohen Hammond, Greg Cooper, Anne Bryden, Alberto Palomino, Sahel Usin Rojas, and Joe. I'm Joe, a video editor living in Toronto. I started supporting Canada Land to help get the Thunder Bay podcast series made. As someone who grew up in northwestern Ontario, it was interesting and wild to hear about the crazy show that Thunder Bay can be. Shortcuts is my go-to look into Canadian media, but Wag the Dug and Commons Dynasties are well worth a listen. Keep up the solid work, especially on New Brunswick. Sam, who were the 11 candidates in the 2019 federal election whose campaigns were allegedly secretly funded by the Chinese government? My latest reporting is it's at least 11 candidates in the greater Toronto area only that were allegedly funded by a network run out of the Toronto Chinese consulate. This is a piece-by-piece investigation. It's based on years of my work and sourcing, reviews of documents that continue to come to light through leaks from people that are very concerned with uh, Canada's national security and lack of protections against foreign interference from China, most specifically and threateningly, but also countries including uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and some countries that people would consider allies. Uh, I'm not quite ready to name those other countries. I hate to sound like the cops that I would question as a journalist, but this is an ongoing investigation where I'm not only getting information from people in very uh, sensitive positions in government, but people in communities that are giving me information about what they confirm and corroborate are, are people in this Chinese threat network. Where I am at Global News, we are very currently working on putting forward names and specific details about candidates that my sources indicate were targeted by a network from China. And it's important to say this is a global network that's called the United Front Work Department. And my reporting is about uh, how intelligence agencies in the West say that this global influence arm of the Chinese Communist Party is increasingly seeking to infiltrate democracies. This is not just Toronto. It's not just the federal government. It's all levels of government in Canada. 
I need to bear down on this for a bit because it's an explosive report, okay? 11 people running to be members of parliament allegedly have their campaigns infiltrated by the Chinese consulate who want these candidates to win. We don't know who they are. We don't know which of these candidates won. Can I ask you that if you're not willing to or able to share the names? Did any of these candidates win? Are they currently members of parliament? The information that I've reported so far is that the network includes liberals and conservatives. And you need to watch my wording very carefully. The network is not only people that have successfully or attempted to run in the 2019 election. My sourcing information, which ultimately stems from federal intelligence documents and then interviews with sources with awareness of the underlying CSIS investigations that inform these federal documents. The information is that members of the network include staff working for campaigns, staff working in the offices of elected officials, politicians at various levels of government, community leaders who on the surface would look like leaders of grassroots community associations, but are in fact tasked by the consulate to be involved, to be proxies in funding of campaigns and in offering, you know, community support, offering endorsements, offering media. So uh, I'm not ready to report on exactly who is allegedly involved in the network that was targeted or if they were elected. But I can promise you and your listeners that I'm working very currently on uh, reporting those facts. So it's not just alleged that money made its way into the campaigns, but that actual staffers of the campaigns are working for Beijing. Yes, the information is that uh, federal candidates were targeted by Beijing to take the positions that the Chinese Communist Party would favor. And so the logistical, the funding, the covert support through community groups and through, quote, co-opted staff is a means to infiltrate these campaigns and uh, to, to influence Canada's parliamentarians. And so that's how it works. Sam, I know that there are always very carefully considered reasons as, as to why reporters can share certain information and can't share other information. And I know that you'd like probably like nothing better than to actually name names here and, and give us a complete picture. It's not simply that these candidates had their campaigns infiltrated with money from the Chinese consulate, but it sounded at one point like you were saying like politicians themselves are compromised in that the politicians themselves are aware that they are in some way working for Beijing. Is that what you intended to say, that we, we have elected officials in Canada who are cognizantly, knowingly working for foreign interests? Just focusing on what I've reported, the 11 candidates running in 2019 were targeted by the Toronto Consulate Network. So that's the Chinese Communist Party mm -hmm. foreign influence arm. Some, we're talking about documents, some are, according to CSIS investigations, wittingly part of this Chinese influence effort. That is, yes, they know. And some would not be aware that they are being targeted by compromised individuals that are working for Beijing. Again, this is all with the ultimate objective. Here's a quote, subtle but effective 
foreign interference in the greater Toronto area. If CSIS says it's subtle but effective, then you can take from that that someone in Canadian intelligence at senior levels has said that China's interference networks targeting Canadian parliamentarians are effective, have been effective. Not only that, but they're uh, predicted to be more persistent and pervasive in future elections. We'll get to the future elections in a bit, but I'm still staggered by the implication of what you've reported. Like some time ago, when did your report about these 11 campaigns come out? The first report was uh, November 7th, and then further documentation on this uh, Greater Toronto Area Network was filed in a parliamentary hearing that resulted from my November 7th report. So that led to more reporting, more granular reporting by myself a few days prior to Christmas. And you and your listeners can infer, as I said, I'm working very actively on further reports that will dig deeper with more granular detail right now. Okay, investigative reporting can take a lot of time, but you dropped a bombshell in November that our democracy has been compromised at the federal level and that potentially there's like elected leaders governing right now who have are under some kind of sway from a foreign government. What I want to know is as soon as that report comes out, why are we all waiting for you? There's a finite list of possible MPs. Wouldn't this be motivating every journalist on this beat covering Ottawa, covering foreign affairs, covering China to be trying to figure out who CSIS has on their list of compromised candidates? Like, shouldn't this be an all-hands-on-deck situation? That's a great question. I mean, I, I can say that I know that there are senior reporters trying to chase things down, and I agree with you fully. It's a, it's a file of great urgency. You know, why people came forward to me, why has the reports... Uh, a few very consequential reports gone out without names on them. Well, there was an urgency to put out that information from my perspective. There was also plans to keep following the logical course of the information we reported and to name names and to get deeper. And that's exactly what we're doing. I think most of your readers probably get it, and, and you do too, that in the course of very challenging investigations, there are obstacles and hurdles that, uh, that come into your way. But if you have the weight of public interest behind what you're reporting, you keep going and you do have a duty to the public to name names. And that's where I'm going why aren't others able to, you know, confirm certain aspects? All I can tell you is that I understand that, again, people that provide information are at risk. There are a lot of considerations and sensitivities around, you know, what I have reported and how it needs to be vetted. It takes a while to get there, but this is only the second or third inning, I believe, in a nine-inning story. And I believe it's a story that is uh, perhaps one of the most important corruption stories in Canadian history. I mean, things can happen very slowly and information trickles out, but then when enough pressure is applied and often going public, you know, like breaking the news, suddenly things can happen very quickly. And one way that things might've gone quickly besides other media getting on the story as well is if opposition parties were to say, this is a very concerning report. We wanna know who these MPs are. But then it occurred to me, if each of the parties had candidates affected, then they, they might not be so quick to demand answers and transparency. 
Well, I think there is something to what you're saying. There's a committee hearing that resulted from the reports that I started on November 7th, where we've heard from conservative members and NDP members saying exactly that question. You know, how bad is this problem? Who are these 11 MPs? And, you know, I think one of the challenges is that it's so urgent. uh, The allegations are so powerful and, you know, it's so complex what I'm saying is going on that it's not easy to question the government as information trickles out, you know, as it sometimes happens in in these stories. And I think you're very familiar with the we file, how new information comes to light and then it becomes a big deal in the government. But I think the we file, we could probably more point to one government and even one family in government than a lot of others. This isn't even a scoop, really. Look, I've seen the information that, of course, this is not only one party, it's all major parties that are targeted not only by the PRC, but other nations. But I'm going to reiterate, the threat is by far the most the People's Republic of China and their United Front influence networks. And again, not just the federal government. We're talking from school boards to municipalities, provinces, up to the federal government, uh, indigenous bands. I'm telling you, Jesse, uh, the United Front threat networks are about influencing essentially any powerful and influential person from government, business, academia. The Chinese Communist Party is seeking to get close to people that can influence opinion, policy, and politics in Canada. I need to ask you so much more about that as to like why they're doing this to what end and how it's all happening. But I have one last question just about how this story has played out so far. And it's it's just some things that are troubling me about, I guess, just the lack of pressure and speed with which new revelations, uh, you know, have not been coming forward. Do you think it has anything to do with the prime minister himself throwing cold water on your story? Part of what you reported is that Trudeau was briefed about this. And as far as we know, didn't do anything about it. And he refuted that. He denied it. He said uh, no intelligence briefing happened about Chinese funding of candidates. And, you know, I think that the casual reader might be forgiven for like, is he saying that the whole story is bullshit or is this some like very specific semantic excuse? Like, why are we having a conversation about what Trudeau knew and when, as opposed to what the hell we're going to do about this, like, and whether or not it's true? Do you think that the prime minister was effective at essentially slowing this down? Um, There were a lot of good thoughts in that question. And so to the first one, I'd start by saying that the prime minister's response at the end of the day to this threat And to this story that reveals the threat will be the most important of anyone in government because the prime minister and the prime minister's office at the end of the day will have the power on whether Canada will follow the lead of Australia, which is what Canada's uh, panel of national security parliamentarians are recommending to the prime minister and the liberal government that Canada should be following Australia's example to this very similar threat to their democracy and instituting a new foreign agent registry act and laws. And, you know, to color my answer, uh, I've reported that this bipartisan panel with access to sensitive national security records has been recommending such actions for, I believe it's three or more years now, 
Very specific, Jesse. Australia is an exemplar. Your readers can go to one of these redacted reports and find that. And that, you know, Canada's national security is threatened. Our democracy is facing a, a threat of erosion from these very aggressive games, as Mr. Trudeau called them. And yet, circling back to the, my sources that came forward to me, they're saying, where's the action? There's ample evidence, there's no action. So has Mr. Trudeau, through media tactics of the Prime Minister's office, succeeded in, in maybe throwing... Um, some mud in the water or circling back to a metaphor, putting an obstacle in the way of the reporting or in the way that Canadians would receive it? I think that's the right question to ask. Whether, you know, what was a very semantic parsing that ended up as a general denial? Well, from my own experience, that's what I was hearing from people. And if they had that impression, they're dead wrong. Because at the end of the day, if you really parse the prime minister's responses, it seems to me that he's saying, using his voice, I was never informed that Beijing funded federal candidates. Well, Jesse, you know, this was a complex story about a network being funded, and we never reported that the prime minister was told Beijing uh, funded directly 11 candidates. Uh huh. I do think there's some parsing going on, and I do think the prime minister's office is capable of such parsing. Well, we know that, and there's a history of this, and sometimes when their back is against the wall, it's not even slippery language. They'll just lie, and they did that in the SNC-Lavalin revelation from the Globe and Mail. They just said the story was false. The story was not false. This has been the playbook again and again. But yeah, it can have the effect of being read as sort of a blanket. There's nothing to see here. The media's got this one wrong. And I wonder if that's not something that happened in the case of this story. I think at least some people probably took that away. And all I can say is that uh, anyone that's listening can have confidence that this is all that I've been working on, getting out more stories with more details and there's so much more to report. There's also a lot of obstacles. This is a, a story of great urgency. And I don't think you even have to infer to say that there's people in government that don't want these very specific stories coming out. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have 
magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. All right, now let's talk about what actually is happening. What you've described is the United Front, which we know that this is alive and active around the world. This is Beijing's foreign interference wing, I suppose. You report that they have compromised Canada from school boards to federal elections, and you describe quote, a growing sense of elite capture and even corruption within the Canadian government. So let me start by asking, why is China doing this? What do they want? What the experts have told me, and uh, you know, I've reported, whether it's my book or, or touching on it in these recent reports and other interviews, is that China, at the end of the day, is fully focused on protecting the regime of the Chinese Communist Party. So we're talking about the men at the very top of China, the politicians that rule that country. They're seeking to protect their interests. And the United Front, I think we've got the bandwidth to get a little bit into what's behind it. This is the United Front. And this doesn't just, this comes from international experts. It comes from the top diplomat from Taiwan and Ottawa. The United Front is a a, a Leninist political tool that is just like, it's a powerful, what it's called, you know, political warfare. It's about you. So we're talking about the, the Politburo here, the, the most powerful men in China have unrolled a strategy for decades where it's about picking out your most powerful enemy and making allyships becoming allied with the enemies of your enemy until you can get a weight behind your policy. And when you draw in people to become part of your united front, that gives you the power to eradicate your most serious enemy. And then the people within that you've drawn close to you in this Leninist political war tool, it's all about power and protection of the regime. That's the core of it. To put it visually, they're rolling out that system into uh, other countries around the world where they attempt to, through just very subtle means, infiltrate democracies with this, we can call it the biggest big tent political party in the world, is the Chinese Communist Party trying to use its political system in other nations. I have to tell you, it sounds kind of grandiose and generalized. Can you take this down to earth for me? And like when we're talking about things as granular as like a school board, why would they want to have influence over a school board? Sure. So a very granular detail in my first report, I said that uh, intelligence briefs said that in 2014, the Toronto consulate transferred one million Canadian dollars to community group proxies in the Toronto area so that they could put on fake protests in support of Chinese uh, state education systems within the Toronto District School Board. So uh, this is a, a perfect question and a perfect example, Jesse. The United Front Work Department, according to the U.S. State Department and, and other uh, nations around the world, 
uses Confucius Institutes as one of its soft power influence tools around the world. So the Confucius Institutes that China wanted to be involved in Toronto District School Boards are a part of the United Front. The community group leaders who put on these fake protests in front of uh, the district school board offices in 2014 are part of the United Front. And guess what? These very same leaders that you can see on videos of those protests are allegedly the people running Chinese so-called police stations or their network associates are allegedly involved in Chinese police stations. What's more, these very same community leaders allegedly would be proxies that facilitate clandestine transfers into Canada's political system. So in that example, you can see three things. We're talking about the school board where China's seeking influence, community groups involved in fake protests allegedly receiving a million Canadian dollars to fund these protests, police stations, influence of Canada's political system up to the federal level. I'm saying they can all be tied into very concretely some people in Toronto that are uh, used by the Politburo and the United Front Work Department to meddle in Canada's affairs. Well, we've talked a bit on this podcast before about this revelation about these police stations, these unofficial storefronts where, in fact, we're finding out that... um, Beijing's law enforcement has, you know, this foreign presence leaning on enemies of the Chinese Communist Party, tracking down, you know, criminals who are wanted by the party or by law enforcement in China, and using the fact that uh, Canadian Chinese people have um, family back home, or some some of them live between the two countries, to exert pressure uh, and completely intruding on Canada's law enforcement sovereignty in doing so. That I kind of understand. I still don't understand. I know that the Confucius Institute, I know these schools, I know they're trying to change the name and kind of rebrand them. What are the protests for? The allegedly fake protests? What's the purpose of those? Yeah, so I mean, other countries have banned them because they say that the Confucius Institutes are part of essentially, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party's foreign influence arm. It's propaganda. And so what can seem as, you know, uh, friendly as Chinese language lessons for free or something like that in, in Toronto or Vancouver or elsewhere in schools can be, according to Western intelligence, it's an arm of Chinese intelligence, both trying to, uh, you know, through soft power and other more uh, hard power espionage means, infiltrate both the education systems and the social fabric, the political fabric uh, of of other nations, starting at the school level. So that's why Confucius Institutes are of such importance to Beijing's international United Front plans. And uh, what are these fake protests about? In 2014, there was a controversy around a number of people in the community said uh, exactly what the Western intelligence agencies would say at a high level. They don't want to be subjected to what they believe is uh, Beijing's propaganda in Toronto schools. So they were protesting uh, to the school board. There were hearings where uh, it was questioned, will the school board go forward and include these Chinese state-linked schools or not? And so what the information that I reported on says, the consulate wanted to provide the superficial story that there's a lot of support for these schools within the broad community. And so that was what was behind these fake protests that involved people that are covertly proxies for the consulate. 
you've said that you're getting this from you're getting this from a lot of sources, and, and you're, you're, you know the most recent bombshell you're relying on CSIS documentation. But you've also said that people inside the United Front criminal networks, like United Front people themselves, are some of your best sources. Why would those people talk to you? Well, that's right. You know, very specifically when we're talking about community groups uh, getting funds from the consulate and using that, you know, to, to put out fake protests or to take part in political or democratic activity in Canada, very specific people confirmed to me that they would have been aware of or in contact with people from the consulate that would have not only encouraged but pressured or tasked people in the community to appear at certain rallies or to appear when a leader from China arrived in Canada or to appear in a counter capacity if Hong Kong Canadians were, were out uh, you know, in Toronto and Vancouver in 2019 protesting for democracy in Hong Kong. People from the pro-Beijing side would not only show up, but I'm telling you, uh, I have sources that say they were tasked to show up at such events. So these would be people that are admitting to me that they could have been leaders within what I'm calling the United Front Work Department or another name for it. Uh, there's something called the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office, which is an office within consulates worldwide that is involved in liaising with communities originating from China, but which Canadian intelligence documents that we've reported on say is uh, really, you know, monitoring using and uh, tasking and really involved in espionage with or attempts to control diaspora communities. So yes, I have sources that have told me they're aware of very specific transactions and tasking from the consulate. We can have a whole other conversation, Sam, about everything that's in your book, Willful Blindness. I don't think we have time for that today, but there is a connection point that I think will help me Maybe do something that I've been struggling to do throughout this conversation, which is sort of like try to get my head around the big picture here. Why don't I try to explain my understanding from your book and from talking to you and reading your reports as to like what is actually going on here? And you can let me know if, if I've kind of got it right or not. What I read in Willful Blindness is that essentially Canada has been compromised through its casinos by criminal networks from China and this goes back decades, that organized crime rings saw Canada as sort of a soft target, a place to launder money, a, a place that they could uh, use to park laundered money in real estate as a commercial hub for international drug trade, uh, human trafficking, and that uh, Canada decided, uh, the authorities decided to be willfully blind to this. They were bringing a lot of action into the casinos, and there was heavy pressure to kind of look the other way. There were all kinds of facets to this. There was a money lending operation happening out of Vancouver, ways in which the whole apparatus of gaming in Canada became kind of like a part of, of, of how criminal money gets gets laundered and reintroduced in, into, into uh, the system. And that that criminal network has a blurry line, that organized Chinese criminal network, there's a blurry line between it and state power in China. Am I okay so far? That's entirely accurate. Yeah. Okay. So it's one thing when, when you're reporting on organized crime, but this most recent round of reporting, things move much more into the political arena. And the best I can understand that is that this longstanding presence in Canada from these corrupting uh, organizations 
is more effective than anybody knew previously, and, and it, it has been slowly exerting influence and working its way into Canadian institutions, into, like we say, school boards, perhaps municipal governments, and into federal governments. And maybe I'm thinking about things in too much of a meat and potatoes way to say, well, why do they want to do it? What do they get out of being in a school board? It seems like what the United Front wants, given the size of the diaspora community in Canada, given the fact that Canada is useful for all these other things, given that Canada is a player, albeit a small one in the world stage, uh, the point in a macro sense is just to increasingly have power and influence for whatever China, for, for whatever Beijing might want on any given day. That might be with respect to the Meng case. That might be with respect to the Michaels. That might be with respect to anything that's going on. You want to be able to flick a switch and say, oh, there's public support for Beijing's position on this. And the the further you have worked your way into Canada and its institutions, the easier it is to do that. And the goal here is just to get deeper and deeper in without anybody stopping it. Is that the big picture? Jesse, you nailed it. <laughs> and I would say, you know, there's examples to support that. But at the end of the day, Canada's political system, as you know, you know, people might start at the school board and work their way up if they're a star to, to higher levels. So Beijing's influence efforts are aimed at, at Ottawa. They're aimed at Parliament Hill at the end of the day. But they're also aimed at provincial governments for specific reasons and for the reasons that politics is a great big ball of wax where at the end of the day, whether you're involved at the school board level or in Parliament Hill, you'll have an opinion on whether it's okay to openly say what's happening in Xinjiang is a genocide. And so the more power you have politically in Canada, your voice will matter whether you vote you know, to support a UN resolution on that point or not. Or when the government is trying to handle that most difficult case in recent history, the Michaels, and are we going to follow our sort of legal mechanisms with the United States or work out sort of a, a prisoner swap? Everyone you know, had an opinion on that, but at the end of the day, people in Ottawa had the real say. So it is all aimed at those big, high-level issues that not every Canadian would think about every day, but will matter, both in very concrete ways and in, in how Canada relates in, in trade with China and how we fit into our agreements with our long-standing allies. All of it matters, and Beijing wants to have a say in everything that's going on politically in Canada. Sam, some people I'm sure uh, are going to say, and probably uh, you'll let me know, have said that this is a paranoid fantasy and this is red scare stuff. Uh, your book, I noted, begins with an introduction by a human rights scholar, uh, Teng Biao, titled, Holding Governments to Account Should Not Be Conflated with Racism. As a white reporter covering this stuff, I wonder if that's also something that, that is at play, that people say this is, this is a, 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 a racist narrative here that is uh, in a time when anti-Asian sentiment and racism and violence has gone up, is dangerous and is wrong and wrongheaded. Have you faced those kinds of accusations? And, and has that been a factor that you feel has inhibited Canada from taking a closer look at this stuff? I mean, 
to handle the last question first. It has inhibited Canada. Why can I say that? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that from people inside government that it does inhibit Canada. Let's take the Xinjiang example again. We had noted senators, I think, you know, stand up in debates and say, we should not label or say China's guilty of what the UN says they are because that will inflame anti-Asian racism. So there's a very concrete example where some powerful politicians would have inhibited Canada's standing with the UN on that resolution for that specific issue. And I want to say that there is good reason anti-Asian racism does happen. So the reporting needs to be very sensitive and careful. And so people should be aware that this can have impacts. And yet on the other side, I can tell you, Jesse, the United Front Work Department uses, you know, racial divisions. It uses the allegation of anti-Asian racism as a cover for the Chinese Communist Party's very, you know, ironically racist attitude that it should be the arbiter of the broad opinions of the Asian community in Canada, which... I'm not just speculating or theorizing. There are elements of Chinese intelligence operations that push forward those narratives that reporting on whether Canada needs a foreign agent registry is somehow racist. I, the very specific example that Hong Kong-born Canadian former MP Kenny Chu out in Richmond, B.C., put forward a, a bill for a foreign agent registry, and Kenny Chu was very clearly attacked you know, many open source researchers have said he was attacked by sort of Beijing adjacent media networks as being a racist for suggesting that bill. Overall, yes, uh, the reporting can be attacked or counterattacked by people with very, very dark and nefarious motives. And at the same time, it, it's also true that the reporting needs to be balanced and careful. And we need to understand that this is about the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to subvert Canada's democracy. It, it's not about race. It's about a political warfare tool that I've talked about, the United Front. Sam, the Prime Minister wanted to turn the dial down on this once the finger was pointed at him. But in other messaging, he is confirming what you're saying. The prime minister has said that foreign actors are playing aggressive games with Canadian democracy. And we saw a more combative stance. Trudeau, I think, in more of a passive-aggressive way, put out a kind of a tough talk message about what happened during his meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, and then she kind of like buttonholed him and accosted him in view of a camera. And so that's not how I remember that meeting, essentially, was the, the message I took from that. But it does seem like the gloves are off or the need to put up a front that everything is okay between these two nations seems to be dissolving. And w we seem to be more overtly at odds. Does that create a scenario where getting some clarity on just how bad the situation has gotten and figuring out exactly where Canada has been compromised can occur? Are, are we going to get to clarity on this? Well, I mean, it, it can get very complicated or it can get very simple. So what we've seen in the timeline since my November 7th report is that the government came out and said, we are going to consult the public about a foreign agent registry, you know, which was one of the big sort of gaps that that November 7th story identified. 
is that like a comedy? Like, is that like a hilariously Canadian response to say, oh, we've just learned that we may be compromised from the smallest to the grandest level by a foreign government that, that, that dwarfs us in every conceivable way. We're going to take drastic measures and ask spies to sign a registry. Like, like that's what we're going to do. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to say that seeing any, you know, minute progress is not a good thing, but I do see the comedy in the aspect that this is not a big ask, Jesse. Again, this bipartisan panel with access to very sensitive intelligence reports that aren't disseminated Canadians, but we can probably, you know, assume these are smart people, have recommended since 2019, Canada needs a Foreign Agent Registry Act as a first step, right? Yeah. And as I take your point, it's not that we expect every foreign actor to like line up to sign it, but it does give authorities a very clear recourse if, okay, what do we do if we if we think that somebody – we have evidence to prove that somebody is a foreign actor? Well, they haven't signed this registry, so they've done something wrong, so we can actually do something about it. Well, you're right. We're not even there where we can charge people because they would have to amend the criminal code and have actual foreign interference laws. Like it might not even be against the law to be a foreign actor infiltrating our democracy? That might be okay? Yes, There are people that say it's pretty much okay in Canada right now. So a very first minimal step that Canada, look, you know, the the noted sort of anti-Russian kleptocracy expert, Bill Browder told me Canada is irresponsible for not having this registry. And you're right. It's not like that would lead to criminal charges. That's just the first step in being able to take the next step, which is now that you have, you know, it's compelling people, hey, you'd better tell us the truth if you're spying or, or working for for uh, Russia, right? Once we've said, okay, people, now you have to tell the truth, then you need to take the step and amend the criminal code that if they don't declare that they're working for Russia, we can charge them, right? And that's what they've done in the UK in the past year, let me add, after the MI5 essentially leaked a very public warning that the United Front Work Department had infiltrated UK's parliament. Then we saw a couple of big legal changes in the UK. And so Canada is comically lagging the pack on this file. Yes. Sam, this is fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. I feel we could go another 10 rounds and dig deeper. So maybe, maybe you'll have me back. It'd be a pleasure. I hope you'll do that. That's your Canada land. Hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. If you value this podcast, support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, we have so many things for you. We have premium access to all of our shows ad-free. We have early releases. We have bonus content. You will also get our exclusive newsletter. You will get discounts on our merchandise. We have a new toque I would like you to have a look at. We have invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, by supporting us, you become part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Do it now. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called Syndication, is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. 
You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.